Hi, I'm Trevor Keegan, and this is Out and Proud. In this series, I talk to four prominent people from the LGBTQIA community about embracing their identity and living their lives out and proud. This week, actor, screenwriter and playwright Mark O'Halloran talks about representation, claiming his space and falling in love. Mark, you are an accomplished actor, writer, screenwriter, playwright, cat parent even as well. Cat parent, very important. <laughs> the most important My, label of all. That's, that's a vocational thing rather than a, a career move. Yeah, it doesn't bring in any cash. No. Um, you're also a gay man in your 50s, am I allowed to say that? Yes, 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 I'm 53. When did you become fully comfortable with the gay status or is that even a process still in train? Possibly. Well, I think that, that with every age that you go through, you have to sort of Recomforted yourself in some way um, in that I'm now an older gay man and that brings its own sort of issues and thoughts and where do you belong on the gay scene and where do you belong, you know, in the gay social scene, for instance, is very orientated towards youth and young people. It's pubs, it's clubs, it's all of that sort of thing. There are other elements to the gay scene that, that are probably more welcoming. So there's that goes on. But I think that the, the trauma of... Um, maybe I'm overblowing it, but the trauma of when I was younger, when I was a teen, for instance, realising that I was gay and I didn't want to be, you know, I was from a small town and and at the time there was very little context for a gay person to to find where they belonged sociologically, politically, sexually, any of those things. The conversation around them was banned. And when it was talked about on television, it was like, oh my God, this terrible problem, how do we solve it? And so... The way I dealt with that was kind of strange. I came out to my friends and then I moved away from the small town I was from. And then I just decided not to be in the closet anymore. And that came as a great relief to me in my early 20s, I would say. So when I came to Dublin, it was like, yeah, I'm gay. So what? if you don't know, that's not my problem. Like, I'm just living my life now. So thanks. I remember going to the gay bars. Uh, the, the men there on the uh, on the gay scene in the bars would have female names attached to them like oh Nula there's Nula there's Betty <laughs> I've never actually oh, we should get back to that later I've never understood that concept well part of it was you'd also have they'd be like that's Seamus and you'd meet Seamus then on the street afterwards and you'd go how is Seamus and you'd go that's not my name my name's actually John everyone had a code or a name that wasn't their own because everyone was hiding even in the gay bars they were hiding with another identity and really I was just not having any of that and I think I was part of a generation that suddenly kind of breathed out and said, all right, enough is enough. I was kind of done with the whole, look, this is the great drama in my life and I'm going to tell you all and cry because I didn't feel like crying. I was totally comfortable with it at that point. You sound completely well-adjusted to it. <clears throat> I wouldn't call myself well-adjusted <laughs> now, but maybe I was well-adjusted to that part of my life. Yeah, for sure. Talk to me about growing up in Ennis, going back slightly, because mm. you're one of ten? I'm, I'm number eight of ten. And actually, I have a gay sister and a gay brother as well. Wowzer. So my sister came out and then it was known about me. And then my brother, my younger brother, who's significantly, well, he's five years younger than me. He came out then later in life. I was very surprised when he came out. It didn't occur to me that he was that he was gay. <laughs> the gaydar didn't work with my brother. My gaydar did not work with my brother. And I was like, 
are you sure? <laughs> and uh, but he's happily married now, living over in England. So if the, <coughs> so your sister came out first. Yes. So the, that, she's my older sister. Yeah. Did that take the pressure off you? Your coming out process. Well, I think that that in a weird kind of way, it doesn't take the pressure off in some ways, because everybody's coming out is is a personal journey that they go on, and I think that coming out is actually a personal journey of self acceptance. It's a point that you get to where you go, look, I'm ready to tell you this because if you're not okay with it, then I'm moving on. You know, it's 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 that. And I think that you have to go on that journey on your own, you know, in that weird kind yeah, of way. Yeah. Like, for instance, with my mother, who's very accepting. I never sat down and told my mother that I was gay. You know, she just announced to me one day that she knew that I was gay. I didn't feel I wanted to have that level of drama in some way. I felt I was like, OK, let's just get on with it. I wasn't pretending to be somebody else. I wasn't pretending to have a girlfriend. I wasn't pretending that I was going to get married and have a heterosexual life. I was just like, I'm not having this drama. <laughs> For somebody who created lots of drama. Who later creates lots of drama in life. <laughs> and, uh, and now, you know, my mother is so open and so accepting of all these things you know we thought she she know she'd love me to get married I didn't realise when gay marriage was going to happen that the pressure to get married I know <laughs> would, that would, be, would be so intense um, um, and I think maybe mammies love love that's probably a part of it isn't it yeah I mean I can imagine if I had children what I would want for them is to for them to meet somebody who loved them and who cherished them and all of those things and I'm sure that's what she wants for me you know and you never did as you say you never did the girlfriend thing you never tried to do the smoke screen no why? I had very close female friends and perhaps in school that was misinterpreted as being a girlfriend or something. But it wasn't, you know, I was never I was never attempting to be anything other than what I was. Do you know what I mean? So I I felt no physical attraction to women, so I couldn't invent that, you know, and I I. I decided not to be a liar about the whole thing, you know. Right. And also you toy with somebody else's life when you do that, you know, and it's not I didn't appreciate that. Because things like Debs, for instance, they're always a bit of a chore. Uh, yeah, but I went to Debs basically dressed as a clown and um, <laughs> and dragged my closest female friends along with me to have the crack. Uh, um, that basically was it. Like, we didn't take it in any way seriously. But I think if you did take it seriously, it is a big event in their lives. And I think down the, you know, down the country and in Dublin, there is a movement where, where gay pupils bring their gay partners or blah, blah, blah. And I think all of that's great, you know. Yeah. Um, can you remember, I know you said you were in clubs in Dublin, can you remember your first ever gay club? There's a question. There's probably, it was probably, um, I moved to Amsterdam for a little bit when I was about 19. And I was there for a year working. And um, I went to this gay bar, which I found in a, in a kind of a, an Amsterdam tourist guy. They mentioned, mentioned a gay bar in it. And I was like, I'd never been to London or anything like that at that point. And I was like, I'm going to go there. It was called April's. And I went in wearing... <laughs> I don't know why the name is. So I know. <laughs> well, I just thought, I arrived into this place wearing a very bad Dunstore's jacket. Now, I'm sure the Dunstore's jackets are lovely nowadays. Can I just back in the day, all Dunn's jackets are beautiful? Yes. Back in the day, they weren't. They're lovely now. And I would love a Dunstore's jacket if Dunstore's are listening. <laughs> but... I, I didn't look my I didn't look like an A-gay, we would say. Mm. So I arrived in with these very muscle-merry kind of guys dancing around. And I was standing there at like 19 years of age, my eyes fall, falling out of my head. And there was this English guy alongside me and he was going, are you all right, love? And I said, I turned to him and I said, are all these people gay? <laughs> <laughs> 
And he laughed and laughed and laughed. And that was my first time there. But I thought I had landed into Wonderland. I thought it was like extraordinary that these people were dancing and not afraid to be effeminate. You know, I found that really incredibly liberating. Nowadays, we have the apps like Grindr and all of the other kind of apps where people find each other. You know, you turn the apps on in Loophead in the end, in the, the arse end of County Clare, and you'll find some lonely farmer is, is two miles but, away from you. That's a different meat, though. But it is a different meat. It is, and it's more sexually orientated, mm. and it's not about a social scene. But even the finding of the social scene back in the day was something that I've, you had to buy a magazine that had listings in it or you had to, there was no internet you could check on. And, you know, you arrived up to a city and you weren't quite sure, you know, where where is the gay bar? Follow people around town <laughs> until yeah. I spot, spot where it is. So th- that was, I think it's probably easier now, you know. Everyone knows how famous the George is and, you know, people are genuinely friendly in Ireland, probably more friendly than the gay bars in London. But um, So you fully embraced Amsterdam, I presume? I absolutely loved it. Loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can you can you remember a eureka moment as well where you kind of felt part of the culture? Um, I mean, I can go back to when I was a child. I was aware of being very different, but there was no context. And finding a context for yourself was very difficult back then because you know, there was no programs in the television that were telling you that your community had a history even. You were told the ancient Greeks somehow invented it and uh, it's been around on the margins ever since. But I went into my local library in uh, in County Clare and I was about 17 maybe. And in the adult section, I found a copy of Edmund White's The Boy's Own Story. Oh. And that had a massive transformative effect. And after that, I went on to reading The Tales of the City and all of those kind of books and I realised, oh, actually, hold on. There's a world out there. We just haven't been told about it. Uh, And so it's my job. This is my Mission Impossible, if I choose to accept, is to go out and explore that. And part of it was moving to a city, you know. And I think that the generation that I came from claimed our space. After the traumas of AIDS and after all of that, we claimed our space. We stood up. A lot of the, 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 the boys and girls that I knew just said, we're not leaving Ireland. We're not, you know, I knew of young fellas who were older than me down in Ennis who were, who ran away from home after they were outed or whatever, who died of AIDS in New York and London and wherever in Europe and weren't allowed to come home to die. And because, you know, the generation that I was part of then afterwards were like, I've had enough not dealing with it. Absolutely not dealing with it. There's an excited kind of furtiveness about going to the library in that situation. But then you mm-hmm. mentioned as well, in amidst all of that was the whole AIDS oh, yeah. epidemic. And those ads, I don't know about you, but they made me fearful to be gay because the ad that most famously, I think it was on UK TV, we would have seen it here. Don't was, die of ignorance. Don't die of ignorance. And the, the headstone falling on the ground and just the bleak greyness of that ad, the starkness. Yeah, it was absolutely like it, it transformed the way gay people saw themselves, the way the community worked, the way the wider society looked on homosexuality, especially male homosexuality. It was in weird ways this awful trauma that that, uh, gay people and gay communities and families of gay people went through, people lost friends and lovers and all that. It caused a new wave of 
the gay liberation movement that has brought us to where we are now. It's a, it was a terrible sacrifice to make and it shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have taken that, but in some ways it did, you know. Yeah. Um, you, in your writing, you seem to naturally gravitate towards outsiders for a start. Would you consider that you feel a bit of an outsider as well or is it just that they intrigue you, outsiders <clears throat> intrigue you more? I think I've always felt like a bit of an outsider in loads of ways. Um, probably, you know, originally because of my sexuality and I always felt that my sexuality in some ways, it doesn't anymore, but I felt that originally in those early days when I was dealing with it in my late teens, early 20s, I felt it put me outside of Irishness. It put me outside of my family. It put me outside of my community in loads of ways. And I had to invent all of that. And it puts you on the margins of society yourself. You know, Adam and Paul came from living on Parnell Street and watching the boys and girls. I, you know, when I moved to Dublin, I'd never seen really drug addicts before. They didn't really exist in small town Ireland at the time. I, I saw this academic paper that was written once, which called Adam and Paul a queer film. And in loads of ways, it is that idea of the two boys together and the love that they have for each other and the need that they have for each other. The fact that they somehow co-parented a child in some way. <laughs> and also the, the, the part of, of, of Paul, I played Adam and, and the part of Paul was played by Tom Murphy, who, uh, who had been my lover for nearly eight or ten years. So, like, there was all of those levels to it. Um, and I always joke about it, but I say to people, you know, Myself and Tom had been breaking up when I started writing the film, so I'd sent him messages, or, you know, leave messages on his on his landline saying, Tom, I got you knocked down by a moped today or I, <laughs> a football landed into your face today. And I'm dealing with all of my issues. We had a lot of crack making it. It was a lot of fun to make it. How did you meet Tom? I met Tom because when I left drama school, my first paid gig was doing a touring production of Juno and the Paycock that Joe Dowling had directed and I had three lines in it and I thought I was a professional. And we toured England, went into the West End with it, but I was also understudy and I understudied the guy who was playing Johnny Boyle, who happened to be Tom Murphy. And so we started our romance whilst out on tour. And it was interesting because I, you know, I quickly fell very much in love with him, but I also wanted to push him down the stairs so I could get on stage to do the <laughs> to do the show. But I didn't. I resisted that. Um, but in fact, Tom was one of the great influences on my life. He was a true artist. He was egoless in a way that I certainly am not. <laughs> I have a very healthy ego. But he was egoless and unbelievably talented. And I loved being in his company, even though we rowed quite a lot. And um, we always did laugh at the end, you know. How did you keep the friendship after breaking up? I have a good knack of being able to do that. I, I always think that if you fall in love with somebody and then that love, somehow an incompatibility arises where you can't be lovers anymore. But if you've invested all that stuff, you can't just let somebody walk away. So I think I talked to, I mean, I met an, an ex yesterday and we had coffee. I... I keep in contact, even even the heartbreakers I, I keep in contact with. You need to do a book with tips, please. <laughs> <laughs> but I try to avoid drama. That's the only thing. Now, I'm sure I drive them mad. I'm sure they do have coffee with me and are like, well, for God's sake, <laughs> will he I ever? could kill him. <laughs> will he ever shut up? <clears throat> Your other big movie course is Rialto. Yeah. Um, the main character in that, so he's 
for people who haven't seen it, he's a married man and he ends up having a dalliance with a, a that's such an old word, doesn't it sound like 107 saying a dalliance? Why? <laughs> Miss. <laughs> Mr. Darcy. <laughs> Mr. Darcy. <laughs> a dalliance, I'll stick with it now that I've said yeah. it, um, with a sex worker who blackmails him. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you know or do you know married men in that situation? Not necessarily the black male and the sex worker, but uh, the, the black male and the sex worker. No, but I've known married men who have sometimes had gay dalliances and would definitely not either define themselves as being gay or even question their sexual orientation. But it was something that happened in their lives. Yeah. And what about the the, the man <clears throat> who suppresses that and? It's a kind of intermittent occurrence. Do you think that's damaging? I think anything where you compartmentalise yourself, and they say that men are very good at doing that, but anything where you do compartmentalise yourself, I don't think it's, it's quite good for you. It's, I don't think it's good also for your home life if you have a home life. And in fact, the, the character in my film, it's the thing that he worries about. He worries that nobody will know him fully because he has split himself into so many different compartments. And he said he worries that when he dies, he'll die and be gone and people will start putting him together differently afterwards as if he didn't ever exist. And that causes him great upset and pain and fear in his life. And I found that idea very interesting and compelling. And I, I think probably there's a bit of a compartmentalizer in me. And so I was able to kind of, you know, I, I feel that sometimes with writing uh, any project that comes along usually comes along as a sort of crisis in my own life <laughs> and I find a story in which to work it out <laughs> in some way basically I don't want to pay for therapy so um, so Good I'm way of doing it do you feel the pressure to write gay themed stuff no 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 I mean I don't understand what the idea of taking on something getting up in the morning going I'm going to write a gay theme thing it's just a story arrives um you know, at the moment I'm adapting a novel, which, you know, is is a gay story, I would say. I'm adapting it for TV. And that's been great fun. And what about gay storylines, depiction in movies, gay characters, TV shows, etc.? Do you have any opinion on, do they get it right, do they get it wrong? You know, drama is drama. You know, it's not, I don't, people used to, years ago, give out because the gay characters were always the ones who were miserable and killed themselves at the end. In my films, most of my characters are miserable and nearly kill themselves at the end. But um, but I, I, I think we get the films that we need at, at the time, you know, and they, they I think usually films um, embody the debates that are in the air at the time. So um, what am I trying to say? I don't look to a film to figure out what I think about life in a way. I sometimes do it to get entertained or get to provoked or anything like that. But then sometimes movies do come along that are that thing. Like I, I remember Brokeback Mountain when it came along and I thought, well, this is this is something different because it was a gay storyline, a gay romance. But it was playing to a straight audience, which I thought was really something that I hadn't seen before. Normally, if it was there was a gay film, it would be on in the smallest screen in, the, in some cinema and it would be all the gays are there. There used to be this kind of thing where gay characters were these kind of neutered entities in films who never had sex lives, but were like 
frou-frou characters who came for the comedy value. And I thought that, that, that something like Brokeback Mountain was going, no, this isn't, this is something far more profound. This is love. And I thought the sex in Brokeback Mountain was, was both sexy and also dramatically coherent. What about love? You I mean, you talked about Tom. Was Tom your great love? I think maybe I've been in love three times in my life. Besides me, mother, that is. Um, Tom was certainly a great transformative love. Um, all of my 20s were spent with him. He died when I was 37 and he was 39. But we were very close still through all of that. We worked together very closely. We did plays and films and I spoke to him twice and three times a week. We texted each other all the time. I, I felt that I was going to grow old with Tom. I felt that that's what we were supposed to do. You know, that's we were we were always going to be in each other's lives. We weren't we weren't lovers or together anymore. But it's that thing about what is love. You know, how do you define love? Like looking across a room and knowing there's somebody there who knows you. You know, whenever something really great happened, like a a work thing happened where you got a prize or you got commissioned to do something, the first person was always Tom that I would ring. And when that was taken away from me, I was absolutely and utterly lost, completely lost. And um, it took me a long, 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 I mean, it took me a long time to get over that. And then I fell in love with somebody who broke my heart, who um, I'd never been dumped before. And we were together for about three years and I got dumped. I was very surprised. It's tough going, isn't it? <laughs> it was very tough. I was in my 30s and he went, this isn't working out. And I was like, what? What he, isn't working out? The crossword you're he doing? He didn't do the, what? it's not you, it's me scenario. Yeah, like, oh. that, that kind of happened. And, uh, and packed up and left and I was in bits after that. And then there was one other lover um, and that ended happily, but it ended. Um, and after that, I don't know whether love is possible when you're older. Do you care if you find it again? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to meet somebody. But, um, you know, having been through, you know, big love affairs, do you have the energy to be getting to know somebody again? I mean, really, you know, I don't know whether it's possible. That's it. That energy that you have in your 20s, that carries you into, like, grand passions and all that. I'm not sure whether that's there for me. I would love it. I'd love to get married. You might. You never know. If anyone's listening. Right <laughs> 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 to. RT. <clears throat> um, I have to say that I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much. You. Um, you have one final task before you yes. go. So you're going to get to that in a second. But we obviously, we've touched on a good few themes there yeah. in the in the programme. So we have to say that if any of these have touched you and you think that you would like to talk to people about them, you can get information on our website, rte.ie forward slash support. Every guest we have chooses their song that we play out with. Can you tell me your song and why? My song is from, I think it's 1995. It's a song by David McAltmond and Bernard Butler. It's Yes. And it was a time in my life, I was 24, 25, and that summer... I just, I was very comfortable with myself. I was, I felt I was doing the right things in life. And that song came on. It's just such a wave of euphoria in that song. But also it was a song that I listened to a lot when the campaign for marriage equality was going on. And I used to play it once a day in my Twitter feed. I used to put it up there. And, uh, and it got me through that, what was a very traumatic um, political campaign. Did you find it traumatic? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I was just like, why the fuck are, are we having to justify ourselves again and again and again and again and again and again and again? I was done with it. It was... It was joyous when it finished. It was. Like, it's a joy I've never known before. Yeah, same here. But I tell you what, I think it probably, the whole campaign in total, probably knocked about seven years off my life. Well, I had hair before. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did not. <laughs> Oh,